Welcome to Architecture Insights, the podcast produced by the New South Wales Architects Registration Board. I'm your host, Di Snape. The third of three conversations at the Sydney Architecture Festival about our venue, One Central Park, was with Mark Giles and Glenn Harper of PTW Architects, one of Sydney's oldest established architectural practices. So we invited PTW to be festival collaborators. They designed and curated an exhibition for us that uh, was in the ambush event space called Stories of Home. The exhibition gave a short history of apartment living in Sydney and provided a backdrop to all the festival talks that were held in the event space as a way of connecting the conversation with the place uh, as well as with the tiny dwellings and the global one-to-one tape down that were installed on the Chippendale Green throughout the festival so we could look out through the gallery windows and see what was happening on the green. All of this was designed in order for people to be able to engage with the question, how much space do we really need to live well? Mark and Glenn's presentation, and once again apologies for the lack of visuals in this audio translation, um, and many of the other talks we heard over the weekend, really pointed to a different question. How can we design small, highly populated spaces in order to live well? Other questions that they addressed were somewhat more specific to the Central Park Towers, namely, what is a heliostat? And what does black water have to do with a green wall? Our practice has been in Sydney for well over 100 years and, and being part curator of this exhibition, we thought we'd give you some backstory about um, some of the stories of uh, the exhibition and also to share with you some of the uh, projects that we have undertaken since um, the, the, the founding of this practice in about 1890. Uh, so we thought we'd begin with uh, a beautiful image or uh, aerial photograph of, of Sydney, um, but also to, dem- to share with you that um, in 2016, uh, the Sydney's population has reached, or about to reach, five million people. And so um, the housing or the need for um, residential um, domesticity is not necessarily the freestanding house, but uh, the, the residential apartment type. And so that's one of the themes of our exhibition, which is really about um, some of the stories and uh, projects that uh, PTW has undertaken uh, quite recently and also uh, in the past, which has considered the residential, residential type. So in our exhibition, uh, which we've titled Stories of Home, we share with you um, the residential apartment within an international city. And also on the prediction that in 2036, Sydney will reach at least 6 million people, so there's a lot of people to house. So while the residential flat is not, a new, is not new to Sydney, um, we as designers are required to consider how to modify or adjust this housing type to suit a city with a prediction population of, of well over 6 million people. So with PTW in existence for the last 100 years, uh, these are some of the projects that the company had, had undertaken in the, in the uh, middle 60s. Now the middle 60s is quite a, uh, an interesting point of time for the city of Sydney. 1961, the uh, state government uh, introduced uh, what we call the Strata Act, and that was a significant game changer in the ownership of apartments within Sydney. So for the, for the very first time, uh, citizens of Sydney could purchase, um, take out a mortgage, 
for a residential flat and own a flat within a very large building. So that's quite a significant point of the history of the city. And so PTW of that time undertook a large number of apartments, centrally in the modernist tradition of freestanding buildings set back from the street in quite uh, exotic uh, landscapes. So these are three, three projects which our company had undertaken in the 1960s. Quite elegant in their own right, but they really did ignore the, the idea of the city fabric. So what we have here is an interesting uh, comparison of statistics. In 1966, we're looking at the persons of occupied apartments, and we've compared this with the current uh, statistics of 2011. So these figures are taken from the uh, Australian Bureau of Statistics, which is quite interesting if you, can work, if you can navigate your way around the tables. So what we're saying in 1966, when there was a, a residential flat boom in Sydney, we had on average about 2.8 people per uh, apartment. You know, in some apartments there are up to eight people living, living in these flats. But the figures of 2011 are suggesting that on average there's only 1.45 people living in a flat uh, with the predominance of one, one person living in the flat. So that's suggesting to us that uh, within that, that, that period of time there's been a significant change of the social, social structure of ownership or, or, or populations of the flat. But our experience is suggesting something different. In our recent work, we're seeing more and more families sort of now occupying the residential flat. So what would be interesting to see what the figure would be saying in 2016 when the, the census figures are released. So what I'd like to just take you through before we introduce Mark is some of the more recent projects that PTW had undertaken, starting with their Newington Apartments, so with the preparation of uh, the Green 2000 Olympics, PTW worked with uh, HBA Architects, which were the design arm of Mobac. And in this case here, we explored the option of higher density living within the redevelopment of uh, former industrial lands. Now this was quite a risk for uh, Lendlease, the developers of Newington, because at the time of 1995, which is not long ago, there was concern that the apartments would not, there would not be as, uh, the, the take up of apartments, but it's certainly far from the case. This project here, which is illustrated here in our exhibition, was called Walsh Bay. So in the last 13 years, Sydney had undergone uh, an incredible renewal. You know, uh, Alex Arns has given reference to the development of the master plan for the site here. But in a similar time, slightly a little bit earlier, there was considerations of redevelopment of the foreshore area of Walsh Bay. So in 2001, Sydney had reached a population of almost 4 million. And in that desire for uh, housing uh, populations, there was also a need for designers to consider how, how these apartment uh, buildings could combine together and define significant public open space. The Walsh Bay redevelopment it was a significant urban renewal project that not only combined restoration and adaptive reuse of former warehouse buildings, but also integrated uh, new housing as well as significant uh, civic and public open spaces. Another statistic for us to consider, with the uh, Sydney's population steadily increasing, our experience as architects tells us that contemporary dwelling in Sydney is more than now more than likely to be an apartment. And uh, these statistics confirm our knowledge. So as indicated in these figures, the stories of Sydney home is definitely now the uh, residential apartment block. 
another set of statistics to share with you. With a desire for Sydney to now live in a compact city, the population growth of Sydney is now not necessarily concentrated within the centre of the city, as around the, the CBD, but it's now spread right across uh, our city. We're not saying that population growth has, is concentrated to, into these areas, it's really been widespread. But what's also interesting, and I think it's now off the map, is that there's been a significant concentration or population growth in the Camden area, but that's indicating to us that there's been a lot of uptake of the freestanding house. So at this point, I'd like to t hand over to, to, uh, to Mark, who is a project architect for um, One Central Park, or in, in particular the, the apartment building, to share with you some of the stories on how the building transferred from the master plan, as Alex spoke about, to uh, a completed building. So, uh, yeah, so thank you, Glenn. So I was involved as being the project architect on One Central Park for the East Tower, which is the 34-storey tower with a large cantilever. To explain a bit more about One Central Park and to follow on from the work that what Alex was explaining earlier and with Matt earlier as well from the landscape architecture component, One Central Park has the two towers of 34 storeys, which we refer to as the East Tower, and 18 storeys to the West Tower. Those two towers offer 634 apartments between them, and then they sit on top of a combined podium, which is uh, about 16,000 square metres of a retail space. And then below all of that as well is a five-storey basement car park that extends within, underneath one central park and also captures Five Park Lane, which is the building you can see to the immediate rear, which offers about 1,200 car parks. One of the other things I might point out as we're working through the imagery is that we have a very close proximity here to the UTS Tower. And one of the major features that we're working with, with Atelier Jean Nouvelle's people and ourselves, was a sense that if we hold similar height and we hold a similar massing face to the UTS Tower, we're right on Broadway. Broadway becomes Parramatta Road, which is a primary arterial road system to Sydney's west. And we sense that as you're arriving into city, as you're driving down Parramatta into Broadway, as you're coming up to the city, there's a relatively lower scale of density as you go to the west of where we are. And then as soon as you move to the immediate east of where we are, you're entering to the urbanness and the density and the height of the city. So we felt that there's a way in which UTS Tower and the East Tower of One Central Park could work as a certain gateway. So as you're arriving down into the city, there's a certain announcement that you're coming into the density and urbanness of what happens here. There's certain faces that we felt was appropriate to be exploring with this too, where we had a face to the city, which is the CBD, and to the, also to the east. And you'll sense that, as you can see, and this is where a bit more of the greenery and the ideas of that happen, is that there's a face that's north to the city and east to the city, and a western face that obviously starts granting us sunlight and the considerations of what we can do with planting. There's a face to the south, which is to Chippendale, which obviously has minimal aspects of its, of its sunlight penetration. And then that allowed us to have these very, very, very long, detailed workshop discussions about what we can do about a face to the city, which we felt should be much more orchestrated and much more placed and a much more sort of orthogonal arrangement of how we would look at its facade. And then we'd have a face to the immediate south, where we were looking at a bit more of an undulation or a playfulness, and that the building steps in and out to have more of a, a face that we felt was more appropriate to Chippendale. And we wrapped those two faces in between the two towers of one central part, so that that more softness could work as a dialogue between the two buildings. 
So we'll talk a little bit about the heliostat and that the heliostat is primarily this mechanism that we were working with with Chelle Jean Nouvelle's people about the southern courtyards and where we are. Because we have mass to the north and the, and the east of, of the entire precinct, this building causes a shadowing effect to the southern courtyard, not to Chippendale Green in a significant way, but it has quite an immediate impact in shading to the southern courtyard. So as you're going underneath, as you're going underneath the roadway and you're coming out into the shops out there and you're coming up through the stairs, there's a situation there of shadowing. What we're anticipating, and if you might recall from that very first slide I showed you with One Central Park, is that the intention with the heliostats you don't necessarily see these too much. They're sitting on top of the, of the smaller west tower. There's 40 of them. They're two metres by two metres in polished aluminium, and they move and they track the sun. So if I describe a bit more in section, the intention here is that the sun shines onto the top of the tower, shines onto those 40 heliostats, and those heliostats shoot 40 suns up to the reflector frame. And the reflector frame is the, basic, is the main piece that we typically notice as you're walking past or driving past or here in the, in the area. The reflector frame has 320 fixed panels. They don't move and they have presets and they're very specific about where they will then direct the second beam of sunlight. Approximately a bit over 50% of that, of that secondary bounce goes to the southern courtyards to target particular locations within the southern courtyards to give a sense of natural light in an area that would be in shadow. And a little bit less than 50%, we take through an atrium skylight into the retail space in, in which we're here now. And that's to give a fair amount of the feeling of natural light in retail spaces that are very, very much artificially lit. So if you get a sense about what that means, about the harmoniousness of what's happening within this building, one of the things that we do as an effect with that too is that we skim about 15 millimetres of water on top of that skylight. So as the reflected sunlight comes through the skylight into the retail space, it has a shimmering effect of that light as it comes in and enters into the retail space. And then just one of the last ones here to pick up on is the green walls. And obviously it's been discussed a fair bit uh, in, the, in the previous talks as well. We have our 23 green walls, which is one of the largest extended green walls to any building in the world. And that the green walls are again something we've been very specific about and they were moving over a vast amount of design development times about where they could best be placed, how they could work with particular planting environments that Matt was talking about earlier because there's certain uh, species that we're running with here, initially over 700 species of, of planting. And then we were, we're finalising around, from memory, around about 383 species that are active here. They all have particular altitudes at which they're relevant to thrive in and others where we need to phase them out and introduce another species. One of the main things about the green wall, though, is that this doesn't need Sydney water at all. In the basement, we have a grey water or a black water recycling treatment plant which collects the drainage and the stormwater from one central park. It also collects uh, a partial feed of sewerage and it also we have a Sydney sewer that's running underneath our building here on its way to Botany Bay and we tap into that to help alleviate some of Sydney's sewerage problems. We take all that, we took that into black water recycling treatment and we create one million litres of grade A water a day. 
And that water is what thrives in what we take through into One Central Park and into the surrounding landscape here. It goes, in terms of One Central Park, that water is pumped up to the very top roofs where they get a nutrient dose, and then that water is then trickle-fed into the green walls, and a very different nutrient dose goes into that to go into the planters as well. So that the idea about One Central Park here is that we have a, um, an ongoing situation here of, of recycled water to allow the buildings here to thrive. One of the other major things I might just pick up on very, very briefly is the central thermal plant that's been discussed here before. It's in effect, I think that's again this magnificent vision that we've been working here with the Fraser's Property Group and Sekisui House. It's basically a three-storey underground private power plant that was built and financed and then that creates the heating and cooling energy that we need for our air conditioning units in here, and it also provides the hot and cold domestic water supply to these buildings as well. But all that being centralised in one area, it's significantly more efficient than everyone having their own little areas all blaring away and creating their own private or their own separate energy. It also means we can capture that energy that's being created and create our own private electricity out of this as well. So this is where One Central Park has very significant sustainability credentials that were followed through with the Green Star aspirations in the design phase. And about a year or so ago, we were able to follow that through into an as-built rating where those anticipations of what we were seeking in a, in a design sense are being transferred and confirmed through as-built. So um, from here, I'll pass you back to Glenn to follow through some other projects. Thanks, Mark. Just to wrap up, would just like to, to share with you some of what we would call the next generation of residential apartment <coughs> projects, which are currently uh, within, within our office. So the next three slides is really about what we see as happening within uh, the design of apartment buildings, not necessarily in the city centre, but in other parts of the city. So as we know, that the apartment is the most sustainable way of living in the city. But this is a concept, I think, that's only just come into fashion since the middle 90s, I, I would say. So we're seeing apartment buildings not necessarily within the city centre or the immediate area of the city centre or even in the eastern suburbs. We're seeing new apartments being built right across, across the city in these new, new urban centres. And that's partly due to adjustments in the planning controls. Uh, each of the, the local government areas have now uh, introduced uh, what we call mixed-use centres within the town centres of, of their areas. And this example here is uh, what we'd call the next generation of apartments buildings, which is in, in an area which you'd not necessarily would consider as having apartments. This is a Liverpool, which is in the southwestern section of, of the city. So while the highest proportion of uh, the working aid population live in areas outside this area, new homes of Sydney are being multi-centred and incorporating in, in a mixture of apartment types. So these apartments are not necessarily smaller, they're much larger, they're accommodating a much larger, more flexible, broader sort of social mix of, of, of the population. So this project here is at Liverpool. It's located on a former car yard of, in the southwest corner of the city centre, and it's being used to also to mark uh, the presence of the southwestern entry in, into the centre. So, so not only are we thinking of apartments as providing safe places to live, but they're also now becoming quite significant as city elements. So in some ways, the success of the next gen generation of apartments, especially for PTW, and not necessarily relying on the security of delivering social and culturally accepted mix, but they also cater a range of social groupings underpinned by sound urban design, 
and elegant detailing. Another recent project, uh, which was one in collaboration with um, Collinson Turner and McGregor Coxall, landscape architects, was the redevelopment of uh, a whole city block within uh, the eastern edge of uh, Parramatta. So this is a former industrial site in the city centre of Parramatta, um, known as the uh, Cumberland Press site. And uh, in this redevelopment, it was not only considering new apartments, but how to achieve uh, a sense of community. So this is the, within the, the concept of the next generation of apartments, is how do, how do these apartments relate to one another and contribute and give back to uh, a sense of community and uh, public open space. So with an, an opportunity to uh, redevelopment the urban block uh, on the edge of Parramatta City, a new series of buildings defining uh, new lanes and open spaces as a way of giving uh, a sense of, of community or vital, vital uh, urban open space to uh, the eastern edge of the, of the centre of city. So this building not only includes apartment buildings of 950 apartments, but also includes cultural facilities, childcare and retail uses. So in this next generation of apartment blocks, for PTW especially, uh, it's combining design school and a sense of urban design for a healthy and connected uh, community. The last project that we'll share with you this afternoon is the concept that as the city grows, the way we design will also need to change. And with the New South Wales State Government, in some ways playing catch up with providing uh, necessary infrastructure, certain sections of the city will be severely scarred by uh, these new urban transport um, systems. So these urban infrastructure projects perhaps may be over-engineered but will increasingly require the what we would say the design profession to work collaboratively to find ways to heal the urban scarring defined by these uh, new uh, infrastructure projects. And so in this example here, which we would class as the next generation of projects, is redevelopment of a commercial um, development land on the edge of um, Sydney Park. So in considering Sydney Park, and in some ways will be more uh, marooned by the, uh, the infrastructure work of WestConnex, and with pedestrian access severely compromised, especially along its southern and western edges, the next generation of residential projects will need to consider more carefully how to knit and provide uh, urban connectivity. So it's not only are we providing designs for new apartments, but we're considering the broader context of the urban fabric and how we can give back and make, make sense of some of these really strong urban interventions. So in conclusion, when considering uh, the new apartments of Sydney as places for higher density living, we as designers are required to make sense of the current changes, especially in the urban fabric from some of these infrastructure projects. And we will be required to, I think, apply our professional school in a creative way to make intelligent places to live and give back to the city. So fundamentally, as designers of, of Sydney's new homes, we will allow each occupant, we believe, to live safely address the requirement of development and the concept of densification, and re-establish the street as a community-focused civic space and consider the design of new public open spaces. So for PTW, our experience of at least 100 years of professional practice tells us that apartments in Sydney can be, can be indeed delightful and certainly imaginative places to live.
Um, I just wanted to ask a bit about, for a company that's been working 100 years in the same city, like how has your philosophy changed in the company um, as, uh, I guess, theories and, and urban planning has developed? Well, it certainly has changed from, from what, our under, what we understand. I mean, mm -hmm. in some ways, uh, the resi residential type is certainly a, a type that's really underpinned the, the practice of PTW. And in the early days, it was larger, um, larger houses in the lower North Shore. But within, within that type, there were investigations of, of apartment types or high, higher density living. To pick up on your point, um, you know, there's always been an interest in uh, the residential type. And more recently, I would say in the last you know, uh, 20 years, there's been a focus on, on looking at ways in which uh, higher density living can be integrated across the city, either as infill development or as part of a, you know, a urban regeneration of redevelopment of industrial lands. Thank you. Thank you. I'm fascinated with this building. I watched it from uh, when it first started to grow and then watched the, watched the growth grow. Uh, I was, uh, I was particularly interested in the heliostat that uh, I, I've, I've tried to figure it out since I've been here, but I now recognize just what you do, and I'm amazed at it. But you, in 30 seconds, can you tell me what a heliostat is? Is it, is it, a, is it, is it a mechanical thing, or is it just... Oh, yeah, sure. Okay, sure. I'll um, try to give a short version. But, uh, uh, okay, so the heliostat is, is not the reflector frame that most people can see up here. The heliostats, and I would expect if you step right to the very far end of Chippendale Green and look to the top of the smaller, the, the west tower, you might see some little black triangles on top. So um, a heliostat is basically, it's got a single column uh, like a, a short stub column. It's got a little motor on top of that, and that tracks and moves this two metres by two metres polished aluminium plate to track the sun. So when the sun's over there in the morning, it's facing that way, and then it'll move and track the sun until it's in the afternoon. And um, familiar with the sun's pattern throughout the year, in winter it's following sort of, you know, a lower pattern, a lower path trajectory, and in the sun in the summer it's following a, a higher sun and that the heliostats in here have about six presets to track in winter to get the maximum bounce of sunlight and then in summer to track the absolute maximum bounce of sunlight it can. So it's a heavily automated machine and that, um, that tracks and follows that. Uh, the industrial designers that we deal with that um, do heliostats very, 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 very frequently, but this is by far the largest extent of heliostats they've ever done to a building, but they're very active in, say, remote, uh, areas and doing uh, sun reflection and whether that's used for energy production and various other methods. One of the other aspects that, to do with the heliostat here as well is that um, it could be uh, dangerous on a, on a very high wind day or something like that. So they have a power down. Uh, they have a power down switch here as well, which just basically means they just got to turn around and face to the south. As long as they face to the south, they're away from the sun, and that they, we don't have a. All right. In the effect of very strong winds, that there, there might be a need to power it down and take it away. And if they need to do some work up there, you've got 40 suns blaring away. So we've got to be very careful with the people when they're doing maintenance. So they'll power down and, and face to the south. Mm -hmm. Do you think we'll be seeing more of, of you're talking about the reflector and the heliostats, yes. particularly when it comes to the shading here? Now, that really didn't seem to be much of a concern in the, in the past when it came to buildings. You're build, designing them looking at the shadows, but this is one of the best examples I've seen of you actually mm. actively putting in mechanisms to deliver more natural light. Yes. 
There's certainly applications when the intention of heliostat reflection is, is very relevant. If you're in a dense situation and you're trying to get sunlight into an area that, that you're just struggling to get sunlight to, ideally buildings are all placed in situations and we've got a planning situation that allows sunlight to be where we need it at the time and we can work with that. The situation I suppose we're dealing with here is that, is that we were recognising that there was significant opportunity here and that we didn't want to compromise what could happen with the southern courtyards. And the idea of getting that reflection and getting that sunlight out to there made a lot of sense. And it was something that we were relatively able to integrate into the building, even though there's a significant cantilever up here. The cantilever is very, very strongly integrated into the structure of the building. And we run the big trusses all the way through and they connect it onto columns so that the, the manner in which we were able to cultivate the mechanics and the structure to, to achieve this was, was relatively okay. And that the heliostats just to sit on top of the, the West Tower are a relatively minimal impact on, on our budgets that we were working with here as well because we're just creating 40 heliostats and they just have an electrical supply. They're heavily, we've got a strong level of maintenance that can go to them. Um, the only issue that we had to continually work with was the structural needs to get a, such a significant cantilever out there. So there's uh, fatigue testing that, that needs to happen to make sure that the steel is working okay and that to, to monitor that over time. Um, the good situation though when you're doing big cantilevers like that, these are big, big, big pieces of steel, so they've got a fair amount of inherent um, uh, quality in their own right. So we're not generally dealing with steel that has that corrosion situations that we typically have to deal with because purely because of the substance or the, or the significance of what we have here and then we've encapsulated that in some extremely good um, um, protective coating. That was Mark Giles and Glenn Harper of PTW Architects in conversation with Miles Martinoni. I'd just like to say huge thanks to PTW for their support and contribution to the festival, a partnership which we think is a small part of the collaborative work that Glenn talked about, which is required to deal with the challenges and disruptions that our cities face at a time of massive and rapid change. So thank you for listening to Architecture Insights. We'll be uploading in the next couple of weeks to SoundCloud the other conversations that we had at the Sydney Architecture Festival about Central Park. You can hear from Matt Coggan of Turf Design, Alex Zarns of Zarn Studio. I'm your host, Di Snape.